Hi guys, just a quick trigger warning at the start of this episode. We will be discussing instances of sexual assault, uh, misogyny, racism. Just to flag that with you before you start listening, if those are topics that could be potentially triggering to you, feel free to skip this episode and catch us on the next one. But thank you for listening. Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? Good. I feel like, I mean, do you know what, actually, scratch that. I am good, but sometimes I listen back to our episodes and I can hear myself being, because we've been at home for the past year, I'm like, Good, I really feel like we're turning the corner. Da, 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 da. How many times can one person say that in the intro to a podcast before? It's like, it's not true. You're home until June. Relax. Yeah, it's not true. And I'm just hoping that when things do open up, which I'm looking forward to, I'm hoping they stay opened up. Yeah, me too. Now, my husband and I did a restaurant box at the weekend from a restaurant called Lura that a friend had recommended to me. And even that, in terms of breaking up the monotony, was really enjoyable because you had something to look forward to. Although all last week I kept saying, we really can't wait for dinner on Saturday. (laughs) And I was thinking to myself, oh, man, my life was really exciting once upon a time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I feel the same. I'm at a point where I dread those Monday morning calls and everyone's like, so what did you get up to on the weekend? The worst. (laughs) My husband and I were out on a walk on Saturday and we randomly ran into a friend who moved to the area like end of last year. Hi, Alex, if you're listening. And so we ran into him and we were just chatting, you know, we probably spent about 20 minutes just chatting on the pavement. And after we went our separate ways, Charles and I were just like, that was so nice. That was so nice. And we kept saying it the whole walk home. So good, wasn't it? So good to see Alex because just the excitement of a random interaction is, it's unparalleled at the moment because you don't really get those. Yeah. And I was talking to someone about this saying, it's going to be so strange kind of getting back into having those like random catch-ups with people and then also what's going to be really crazy is touching again I don't think I'll shake anyone's hand again to be honest no (laughs) but just just hugging and having affection between friends yeah that's the key isn't it I agree I probably will never shake anyone's hand again but with people that you hug it's because you know them well enough to trust (laughs) I know you're clean. Yeah, true. Exactly. And I think that's a big issue in the UK. People just don't have the best personal hygiene. Oh, sorry. Was that a generalisation? <laughs> Somebody was telling me off for making generalisations. I mean, the thing is, my default is always to be like, I assume that you don't have good hygiene. I know that that's a harsh thing to say, but do you know what I mean? Kind of prove me wrong. I shower twice a day. Yeah, me too. I have a morning shower and an evening shower because I want to wake myself up for the day and I then want to get into my bed when I'm clean. And maybe not everyone's going to 
do that I mean I, I know a lot of people even some of my friends are like but I'm just at home all day how dirty could I have possibly gotten but I just don't want to be in my sheets with any kind of grime resting <laughs> on my skin basically <laughs> no I feel the same way and I don't really get how people feel differently but it is what it is I guess yeah <laughs> I mean yeah, let's not go down this because I could end up talking about it for ages, like the different body washes that I would use morning and evening or face washes or what the different hierarchy of showers look like to really, truly be clean at various points throughout the day. But suffice to say, there's room here for me to write about it if I so choose. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. But then I know that like, I remember once when I went to the doctor because I have eczema. Mm. And then the doctor's like, okay, so how many times a day do you have a shower? How often do you have a shower? I'm like, twice a day. And then he's like, that's too much. I said, really? And I said, how many times should someone have a shower? And he said, two to three times a week. No, mm -mm. no. (laughs) No, I actually can't (laughs) think of anything else to say. Crazy crazy people are stinking and medical professionals are advocating for it (laughs) really bad really 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 bad yeah that was awful I guess before we start talking about today's topics I just wanted to loop back to last week's episode and we say this frequently you know sometimes we end up talking about quite heavy things and if you want to not hear things like that obviously we need there to be a change in the world because unfortunately this week as well we are talking about some quite heavy topics it's not always enjoyable obviously but I think sometimes you do feel better for having a conversation about it I'm part of a group at work that are kind of pushing to have more of these DE and I conversations and one of the women I won't name any names because I've not kind of cleared this with her but she shared an anecdote in the group last week about taking the kind of conversations that we're having in these spaces and applying them to your personal life. Because often when you start having a conversation about diversity or inclusivity or equality or racism or misogyny or some of the topics that we've spoken about, you end up having them in kind of a quote unquote safe space. So you can say things and know that broadly speaking, your audience is aligned with you. And She is a white woman and she shared an anecdote about taking one of these conversations to a member of her family and basically said, oh, it didn't go as well as I'd hoped. And that is a very real thing as well. If you're trying to get up the courage to have these conversations internally and actually hope that everything goes well, that's an emotional taxation as well as everything else going on. And I would like to think that in spite of all of the negativity of the past year, some of those conversations have been sparked by the kind of global climate. Mm. I think for me, I'm in two minds because I do want to give people credit for going to have that conversation like with their loved ones. But then I'm also like, well, if that conversation didn't go well, if a conversation about racism or misogyny did not go well and that really impacted you, then think about how it actually impacts people that are victims of racism and misogyny. So a part of me is like, 
yeah, well done for having that conversation, but I don't have the bandwidth <laughs> to, oh, yeah. to console yeah. people when it doesn't go well, because yes, it's not going well for people that are victims of these things. So it's not going to go well for you having a conversation. Well, I think as well, sometimes, and this isn't specific to this anecdote, but also sometimes there's a, a kind of a bravery that goes into having any of those kind of conversations when you know it isn't going to go well as well. Like there are almost two different levels to it. And I don't mean this specifically from a white person's perspective. I just mean sometimes having a conversation with someone where you're going to address something and you know they're going to respond badly. Whereas when you're going into a conversation and you're discussing with someone and you have the optimism that they're going to take it very well, that can also affect how you look to engage in that dialogue. And I guess mm-hmm. that is very pertinent in the context of the Atlanta shooting, which is what we're going to talk about this week, because I would imagine for a lot of people, when they heard the police chief talking about how this particular perpetrator of this crime had had a bad day and he was very stressed and that's why he shot and killed eight people, it's like, oh, I kind of knew that you were going to have a bad take on this maybe I was optimistic that you were going to say something positive and it was going to be a, we condemn this as an act of racism. But I wasn't that optimistic because the track record of police force and not just specific to the US, but globally is not always the most tolerant and the most liberal of ethos. What this attack has really brought to the surface is you know, how Asian women are hypersexualized, how Asian women are dehumanized, how Asian women are rarely presented in a way where like they're strong and can have their own voice. You know, Asian women are stereotyped to be meek and submissive. And so it's something that I think we consume in a really unconscious way. Um, And I think what's happened with this attack, it's really brought it to the forefront. And the way it was handled for me was really shocking. But then you're like, oh, yeah, really, are you going to be surprised? I think sometimes what can be shocking about it is not the lack of condemnation, but how absurd the knots people will tie themselves in become. So, you know, it's not the old stereotypical white terrorist with mental health issues you know he's never called a terrorist it's always mental health issues it's always it's sex addiction is is a mental health issue but it's a palatable one do you know what I mean and it's only white heterosexual men who ever have a sex addiction in the mainstream media have you ever heard sex addiction being discussed in the context of anyone who isn't white straight and male um so (laughs) on girlfriends which is now on Netflix, Joan, Joan's the main character, one of her love interests is black male, straight black male, had a sex addiction. But that's not even a real person. Yeah, not a real person. That's not, (laughs) you love Tracy Ellis Ross so much, you're just like, hmm, glad you brought that up, actually. No, but it's true, I get what you're saying. They always try to find some way to justify it. Mm -hmm. Oh, he was a kid. Yeah, oh, he's a 21-year-old kid. 21-year-old kid sex addiction oh he was having a bad day it's harmful as well because I feel that and I know you agree with me on this we don't talk about racism towards East Asian people in particular specifically enough 
And I think the reason for that is is multifaceted. But one of them is this kind of model minority myth. And that is super harmful. Mm. But it's a stereotype that we ingest and we absorb and we accept because, again, it's model minority. It's positive in its connotations. So because of that, we don't believe that it can be harmful. And so for those of you who maybe haven't heard that term before, the idea is that when you're talking about people of East Asian descent, that they are really clever and that they're good at math and that they're super business focused and they're just hyper intelligent and hyper ambitious and so by virtue of those components that they're not suffering the consequences of racism in the way that other non-white people are and this is harmful in a myriad of ways but most importantly it is treating minorities as a monolith not everyone has the same lived experience absolutely so I think that's an excellent point that you've made in terms of sort of the idea of the model minority and you know East Asians in the US are the model minority and in the UK Indians are considered to be the model minority and I think that's definitely leads to people not thinking that East Asians are victims of racism in the way that black people are and what I've been seeing a lot on the internet over the past week is Asian people coming out and saying listen there is a history of anti-Asian violence in the US. So the model minority myth is is definitely a part of that. And what it does is silence the East Asian community. And unfortunately, it takes on another form amongst minority groups. So what you have in these communities is, you know, people thinking that anti-Blackness and their proximity to whiteness will save them from racism. So that's also why people don't discuss it because it's the black community that are the ones that are always shouting about racism, leaving their jobs because they've experienced racism. Whereas the East Asian community are stereotyped as more compliant. And it was interesting for me last week because I was on a clubhouse. Basically the editor in chief of Teen Vogue was fired because of her anti-Asian racist tweets that all surfaced, right? So there was a huge backlash about this and and she was eventually let go. And so I joined a clubhouse, which was basically 300 people, a lot of them from the fashion industry, and they were talking about her being fired. And one of the things that, you know, they were saying is that, you know what, it's good that she's been let go because you can't be editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue and be racist, Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they did they had to let her go. So zero tolerance policy towards that. But we need to be mindful that you don't pit black people and Asian people against each other. Black people and Asian people and underrepresented groups in general still need to find a way to come together, which I think is quite positive that that's happening. It, it felt like what you said, it felt like a safe space where people could come and they could share their points of view. And in the end, everyone was like, you know, thank you so much for your allyship. Thank you so much for your allyship. Whereas outside of this group, what I've been seeing online is, oh, black people need to speak up more about this anti-Asian violence. And I think that distracts us from like the main issue, which is white supremacy. Yes. And that's such a good point. I actually saw a couple of things of that myself where it was like, how can the black community step up for, you know, victims of anti-Asian racism? 
And I just thought it really is everyone's fault, but white people's so much of the time. You know, it's about, as you said, how can everybody else step up? What can everybody else do to protect against this problem instead of eradicating this problem? Yeah, and the reason why that Clubhouse group was started is that the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, the one that's been let go, is a black lady. Mm -hmm. So you had all these black people come together and say, you know, this is not on, she needs to go. We have a zero-tolerance policy towards racism. And I'm thinking, whoa, I see see black people really stepping up here. (laughs) What more can they do? I also think it's just insane to me I actually said it I think on last week's episode in the context of Sharon Osbourne and Piers Morgan where it's like I don't have Twitter because I don't think that anything I say is ever important enough that it needs to be put out into the universe without me thinking about it beforehand and I just can't understand fair enough if you've had a learning journey I don't think any of us are fully formed or fully informed in the context of, you know, true diversity, equality and inclusivity, right? Or whatever acronym you want to employ. I don't think we're ever there. I think it's ongoing work. But my God, how are you going to have tweets like that resurface? Even if you thought that once upon a time, the fact that you would be so complacent that you wouldn't even be like, you know what? As I have grown and matured and learned... I know that things that I've said in the past aren't acceptable and I want to address those preemptively. But the challenge is with her tweets is that her tweets were common stereotypes. So her tweets were like joking about uh, Asians being good at math, which is Mm -hmm. like a stereotype. One of them was about slanty eyes, right? Another stereotype. And even Sharon Osbourne was accused of making fun of her Asian colleagues' slanty eyes. So that's the challenge that we have, that those stereotypes prior to the spotlight that we've got on anti-Asian racism, those were seen as acceptable to make fun of, oh, you're good at math. You know, it wasn't, people hadn't realised that's problematic. It's like saying black people are good at running or... um, you know, black people are good at dancing, you know, those are stereotypes and they can be harmful, but it's, I get the fact that she was fired and what she said was wrong. I don't support it at all, but I can see why she didn't realize in 2011 that this was racist because we're all kind of on that journey. Like if I had read that in 2011, like making jokes about someone being good at math, yeah. I don't think it would have clocked to me like, wow, this is really problematic because what's happening is so, so extreme. Like there's the young lady that I followed on TikTok and she was saying that the hypersexualization of Asian women, you know, she said that's why we're a porn category. That's why especially women from a lower socioeconomic background are abused. And she was kind of breaking down how problematic all of this is. So when you think about that spectrum of, saying this person is good at math and then the violence that we have in Atlanta, it's so, so, so intense. But ultimately what you've done is dehumanised a group of people. 
I'm really glad as well that you said about the sexualization and the porn category and everything like that, because I think that what you have in Atlanta with these eight people dead, six of whom were Asian women working in these massage parlors, you've got a real kind of intersection point of sex work and racism. You know, there's the underlying misogyny, but there's also the class aspect, as you've said, you know, and people never want to talk about sex work. And I think that that's probably because a lot of the time people aren't totally sure how they feel about sex work. And it's seen as the kind of, uh, it's almost a taboo subject. People don't want to get into the weeds of it and talk about what decriminalization of sex work can actually look like or why sex work can be positive or why sex work can be negative and harmful. We don't want to talk about the fact that these women were from a lower socioeconomic group, which is potentially why they were working in these massage parlors in the first place, and which is why this guy, the shooter, targeted them specifically because they were the outlet for his sexual frustrations. And in the moment that he took out his gun and traveled to these places, his foremost thought was his own hypothetical temptation, his own sex addiction, and how that took precedence over real human lives, people with families, people with loved ones, people with rich, fulfilling inner narratives that Mm. had nothing to do with him. His own selfishness and his own disregard for human lives put him in a position where he thought that actually, yeah, the removal of temptation for him was to kill people. You know, and I think that whatever else we discuss, those are the facts that we know for now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why stereotypes are so damaging because when we think about an East Asian woman, when I think about an East Asian woman, I think about a tiger mom. I think about someone that's really good at maths. I think about Harvard MBAs. (laughs) Those are the things that I think about. I don't think about the women at the massage parlor. And I don't think about the women at the nail salon who I actually do interact with all the time, but they actually have become invisible to a certain extent. And so what's happened this week, not being East Asian and having to go out there and find information and educate myself on what's going on and educate myself on why these things are harmful because usually it's you know talking about black lives matter and the things that are happening to black people and then I'm thinking wow but all these white people Sharon Osbourne being one of them was like educate me educate me and it's like no I was actually able to go and educate myself Mm -hmm. educate myself on what was going on and educate myself on why these things are problematic and why these mindsets end up manifesting in violent acts There is an aspect of getting comfortable with your own discomfort in this whole thing. But are you able, not you specifically, obviously, but are you, one, able to not center yourself in your own education? Because it probably will be humbling. And it's the same in the context of Black Lives Matter, when people were actually doing the anti-racism work that you said you were doing during the summer, there is discomfort to that because a lot of the time you will be learning about your own internalized problematic beliefs and there will be discomfort with the unlearning of that. 
But if you are genuine of intent, then you will be able to power through that part. It's not about expecting other people to educate you. And I think that a lot of the time, particularly with white people, there is this almost expectation that everyone around us is waiting to educate us and is happy to do so. And that, as you said, in the spectrum feeds into racist rhetoric, feeds into and propagates racist environments because we're of the opinion that well if no one is explicitly telling us it's wrong and why it's wrong then why should I have to stop if this is all hypothetical in nature then I should just be left alone unless someone sits me down and says listen xyz this is why it's problematic this is why you can't proliferate that this is why you can't propagate that which is such an anomaly of a situation And it places such a burden, such an onus on non-white people or non-heterosexual people or non-cis or heteronormative to constantly be like, hey, listen, I brought the evidence for why you should treat me as a peer. As if it's Harvard referenced that I'll be like, fair enough. Now I take you seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's definitely an over-reliance on minority groups to take on that emotional labor and educate people it is a bit challenging now sort of not being the minority group that is being focused on right now I can see why it could be challenging for people to go and bring this up with their East Asian friends or when Black Lives Matter was happening to go and bring it up with their black friends I mean what I've been doing is obviously following a lot of this and educating myself on what's going on. And I think the clubhouse discussions that I have joined that are talking about this have been really productive. But what I've been doing is listening. And that's all I've been doing is listening, 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 you know, seeing what people are saying on LinkedIn about this. So that's the approach that I've taken. And even though I am in a minority group, this is not about me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that the East Asian community, even though they are not a monolith, have their own unique experience and I think that what's happened has given them space because what happens is you know if you don't have a bad life people think that you can't complain oh well we're not shooting you guys up the way we're shooting up black people what do you have to complain about so I think with everything that's been going on and that's why I think focusing on individual minority groups is wrong because it then leads to kind of like the oppressed olympics Black people have to go around every day and say Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Asian people have to say stop anti-Asian hate when it's like, no, guys, let's really be bold and let's say what the issue is here because the next group have to think about a slogan. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally get what you mean. So that it becomes something that can be nicely consolidated into a hashtag. As you said, hashtag BLM, hashtag stop Asian hate. When actually it needs to be hashtag dismantle white supremacy. Yeah, or hashtag stop white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And just because you're a white person doesn't mean that you're a white supremacist. But if you're not even willing to broaden your mind to understand what white supremacy is and what white privilege is, and then it's like, oh, we're going to focus on BLM, we're going to focus on stop anti-Asian hate, it becomes a trend rather than a structural issue that we need to dismantle. 
And I think people become daunted because they think, well, I don't even know how you'd begin to dismantle that. Again, it begins with the micro. And there was something I I read the other day about one small thing that you can do that makes the difference is you can learn how to pronounce names correctly. That is something that you can do in your life today. There's no delay on it. But what's up with people not wanting to pronounce people's names or like having no interest in people's names? I think people get embarrassed to do it wrong or the potential embarrassment stops them from asking again and stops them from saying, okay, let me just break that down because some names are difficult. I get it. Like sometimes I, it's not the same thing at all, but I use my Irish name in my email address. And sometimes when I call that out, I know that people don't get it. And I'm like, it's fine. I'll spell it. And if I had to tell you something more than once, that's fine as well. But people are so embarrassed to ask, I didn't catch that. Can you say it again? And then be like, okay, so it's, whatever, such and such a thing, Mm. that it stops them from asking. So then it's like, oh, well, I'll just continue to butcher it and hope you never call me out. It's so funny because it's like everything is so hard for people. So reaching out to someone to check in on them, you know, if their community has been a victim of racist hate, this is way too difficult. Asking someone how to pronounce their name. Oh, my gosh, this is so embarrassing. So rather than like saying their name, you're just going to say like an English version. (laughs) Of their name. And so then you think about these minority groups and what they have to deal with every single day. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh, they have to get up and they have to deal with it and they have to make it work and they have to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And then you can't have the inconvenience of, oh, so Jules, how do I pronounce your your surname? Totally. And it's funny because my sister's name is Moran, which I don't know if you've watched the Channel 4 show, Catastrophe, but basically in the premise of that show, the main character, she's Irish and she's female and she names her and her partner's second child, Murren. Her partner's American. And there's this scene where they're talking in the kitchen and he's like saying something like, oh, da-da-da-da-da, Murren. And his wife calls him out. She says, why do you pause every time you need to say her name? It's because you don't know how to say it, basically. And... That would be the same. It's because as well, obviously, you're probably never going to get it 100% right. And I don't mean this specifically with Irish names. I mean this with names that you're not familiar with, because sometimes the way that they are written is not for your dialect. It's not for your mouth. So the MW sound, for example, that my sister's name makes is not natural for you if you are not Irish. So you probably are saying it wrong. But that is fine because as we've said before in this podcast, you can very quickly tell someone who is pure of intent, but maybe not 100% of the way there versus someone who just can't be bothered. And I feel like if you're listening to this and being like, oh, I'm so awkward about the hypothetical embarrassment. If you are genuine in your desire to get someone's name right, it doesn't matter if you're still not totally there because I think the person in question will appreciate the effort. There was a tweet I saw during the week where a woman was saying that she got used to, as you said, giving the kind of English equivalent of her name and that someone asked her, no, but how do your parents say it? And so when she then was given that reframing, she said that it meant so much to her to be given the opportunity to say, 
this is how it's supposed to sound. Mm-hmm. It's a massive opportunity. So one of our listeners shared an anecdote with us about one of her jobs in finance that there was one non-white guy on the floor and I think that his name let's say it was Paul or something like that and that they everybody else on the floor used to call him Brown Paul even though there was no other Paul on the floor because that was just because he wasn't white that was his identity it's like a superhero name almost because you need to other that person yeah. more than they are already being othered. Yeah, exactly. And you have the power to not do that. Mm-hmm. You have the power, when you see things like that going on, you know, you've got the power to uh, diffuse that. And then you can say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And so that's why I have a huge problem with people saying, oh, as a white person, I just don't feel... Like, it's my place to discuss these topics. Okay, you don't have to have an in-depth conversation with anyone, but you can make a choice to change your behaviour. Also, one thing that always makes me laugh is that, you know, people invariably will tease or mock their own culture, which we all do and we are also entitled to do. And I hear people say, I just don't know what to do in those situations. And it's like, you can laugh because it's meant to be a joke. You can't join in because it's not your place to do that. Yeah, you can't add to the jokes. You can't (laughs) add to the jokes. It's so easy, but you can laugh because it's meant to be a joke. Yes, and also it's about the relationship that you have with the person. You know, if you have trust, if you have permission, if you have intimacy, you can have whatever relationship with someone else that you both agreed to. But if there's someone who you don't know, this East Asian and they're making jokes about East Asians, it was like that TV show Fresh Off the Boat. Like, it was so funny. And they can go and make those jokes, you know, but you can't sort of just stumble into a situation and then just start adding to the jokes. Like, that... That's not okay. Totally. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's actually not okay. We also wanted to discuss the Zack Snyder cut of the Justice League film. And that dropped this weekend on HBO Max. I watched it. Did you all four hours? Yeah, I watched all four hours of it. Wow. Tell me. Oh, so you haven't watched it? I, I, I've i started it, but I haven't actually been able to sit all the way through yet. Just yeah. purely because of time, not because of enjoyment. Yeah, so I didn't watch the first one. I'm not oh, that big into DC, right? So I didn't watch the first one. So the second one was the, the first one I watched. And it was so good that I could actually watch the four hours. Wow. It was so good. And I'd heard all the controversy around, I don't know, how do we summarise the controversy? Well, we can summarise it quite easily, I think, because a while ago we did an episode specifically about Ray Fisher and Joss Whedon and the environment that Joss Whedon had created on set. And the whole context of this is, for those of you who don't know, Zack Snyder was originally making the film, but very sadly, his daughter committed suicide. And so he stepped back and it was a kind of an emergency situation. Warner Brothers got Joss Whedon to step in because of his success with the Avengers films. And what you then had happen was there was a really compelling long read that I read about this. But what you basically had was a complete fiasco of a situation where Joss Whedon very lazily repackaged a lot of his 
visuals and storyline arcs from Avengers and then just reused those in Justice League. And so when the film came out, everyone kind of universally hated it. And I think justifiably DC fans were particularly aggrieved because there's this whole kind of Marvel versus DC narrative going on. You'd have to feel really let down then when your end game is essentially supposed to come out and it turns out that it's just lackluster to say the least. Yeah, exactly. And so from what I've read, everything that I loved about the Snyder Cut did not exist in the Whedon Cut. What I liked about Ray Fisher taking a stand was he said, we can talk about Joss Whedon, but this goes straight to the top at Warner Brothers. I liked the fact that he, A, took a stand because it's very, very difficult as a minority to take a stand in this type of situation. Like Ben Affleck didn't take a stand. All of these other established actors did not take a stand. He was the person with the least power with the lowest profile. And he took a stand against the bullying and the discrimination that he saw. And while addressing people on an individual level, he didn't let the studio off the hook. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really rare to see that. And I feel that he made a massive sacrifice in doing that um you know you saw so much on the internet people saying oh he needs to let it go he needs to let it go he needs to let it go same thing with Colin Kaepernick when JV was saying oh Colin needs to let it go when JV announced his partnership with the NFL and then people were like oh JV what are you doing and then he's like oh no Colin no we need to let it go just because Colin doesn't have a job doesn't mean I'm not going to get my money it's basically the summary of what JV said so people like Colin Kaepernick people like Ray Fisher the sacrifice that they've made I don't think many of us can really understand unless we make that level of sacrifice so when I saw the movie on the weekend and you saw the fact that Cyborg plays such a central role in this movie which he did not in Joss Whedon so oh he was cut he was cut he was was cut cut. and just one thing that I wanted to say then in the the context of Joss Whedon as well because when we discussed it I don't think we really delved into the racism that underpins a lot of this but one of the kind of final straws I think for Ray Fisher was that he found out that a minor character's skin color had been changed post-production and he was just like, okay, that's it. You know, I'm over. character? I think it was just, you know, it was like a one scene kind of thing. It was small enough that you wouldn't have noticed it in the overall context of the film. But basically, mm-hmm. Joss Whedon cut so much noise and then changed someone's skin color to white post-production. And it was like, okay, clearly this is being underpinned by a lot of misogyny and a lot of racism and deeply flawed rhetoric. Yes. And so all the minor people of colour, all the minor characters were cut. And then Cyborg, who is very central to Zack Snyder's version of the film, was heavily edited down, let's say. So what was so powerful about the Snyder cut? And I know it's really long and not everyone has got time to watch that. But what was so powerful about this movie is that... A bunch of franchises now have tried to do diversity. Star Wars has tried to do diversity. It's not really worked. What you've seen with the Zack Snyder cut is that the characters are all 
very well developed to the point where, and that's what I think Marvel does so well is that you do start to feel invested mm-hmm. in their characters. And so the cyborg character is developed enough where this isn't about race. You see him as a person. These are standard arcs that all of us can relate to. When you look at the relationship he has with his father, et cetera, et cetera, this is life. This has got nothing to do with race. And so the fact that you see that is, is really powerful. In the, in the Whedon cut, they completely remove Flash's girlfriend, who's black. She's not there. Did you see her? Because apparently she's not there. I didn't see her. And I was going to say when you were speaking, I think Cyborg was in about two scenes. You know what I mean? He was yeah. not. And also, I guess I, I will need to watch the, the full Snyder cut. But also one thing I thought, and now I'm kind of re-examining why that might be. Cyborg is so angry in the Whedon cut. And obviously like that is to a degree part of his arc but it's also that stereotype of like aggressive black man and so now I think oh man how many stories like this do we not ever get to see the Snyder Cut for and that we're left absorbing you know the byline basically yeah what you've said is so important and another YouTuber was saying this how many movies have there been where we don't actually get to see the artist's full vision And apparently that's what they were saying before. Cyborg was so angry, they didn't want their movie to be centred around this angry black male character. But then when you see the Snyder cut and you see his full story, you can see why he's angry. He's humanised in the Snyder cut. And then what's also really interesting about the Snyder cut, because Cyborg has got all of these digital powers and it sort of brings us into this contemporary situation where, you know, we know that financial institutions are so powerful and like Cyborg has this vision where it's like, how do you change these financial institutions or how do you use your power to help people that are victims of these financial institutions? And then also Batman is even more developed you know, my understanding with the initial cut is that Batman is making all these jokes. But in the Snyder cut, he's so developed that when he someone asks him, oh, when Flash asks, what are your superpowers? He's like, I'm rich. It really resonates in the Snyder version. Right. Because right. the character is padded out. And you're like, damn, wealth, wealth, being a billionaire is a superpower. That's so interesting because, yeah, that is just completely written as a kind of a an offside quip in, in the version that I saw. And I just wanted to say something just while you were talking about it there. When I had my wonderful random run-in with my friend Alex on Saturday, <laughs> we pretty much for the full 20 minutes, we were talking about the MCU. We were talking about the Snyder Cut. We were talking about Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And he said something so on the notes that I just want to share it because he was saying I said something and then I was kind of looking around because we were just on you know the corner of a street and I was thinking oh my god here we are talking about comic books and comic book movies at the top of our voice and he said I think some people love to look down on comic books and comic book movies as being kind of childish and the fact is it's fine if you don't like the genre but superhero is a genre now And what we are seeing is that those are written with really kind of powerful narrative arcs and that they are legitimate. They're legitimate, enjoyable, critiquable content. 
And I was so glad you said that because I was just like, oh, that's it on the nose, actually, because you do feel a bit like, oh, am I getting a bit over-involved in a Batman film or whatever? But actually, the fact is that as much work, if not more, goes into these kind of stories behind the scenes and that it can be worth, as you said, looking at it in the context of an actual critical observation of society as it stands right now. Yeah, I felt that about the Schneider Cut. I felt like, wow, there's so much social commentary here. And then obviously the fact that it's within this con- all the controversy around these movies, all the controversy around the studio. And so, you know, we were talking about Ray Fisher. I feel that he was vindicated with this version coming out because so many people tried to gaslight him. The only cast member that I know that said anything was Jason Momoa, who said, I stand with him. I think that Gal Gadot, like, used a hashtag or something, but she didn't come out, you know, there was no... And even then, I mean, Jason Momoa saying, I stand with Ray Fisher, still isn't really coming out swinging. It's not coming out swinging, but he took his stand. Hmm. If they had all said, we stand with him, then there would have been less leverage to gaslight him. He has been gaslit so hard over the last few years that I think the fact that the Snyder Cut came out and we see, wow, all of these differences, it did vindicate him. And this cut is so popular. For people to watch a four-hour film, like, that's nuts. Like, it's so popular that I'm hoping there is a sequel and I'm hoping that he's involved in that project. Me too, although I felt that I had read that his contract was terminated. What I think is, if they don't sort that out, Marvel need to just sweep in there because that's one of those things that it's like, listen, there's nothing but good kudos here for you if you do that. Like, yeah, I think it's just hard. Yeah, it's so, so difficult as the minority voice it's so difficult because you don't have the power. You need to take a stand for your own personal integrity, but then you could end up losing your platform. So even when John Boyega was in London and he was protesting and he joined the Black Lives Matter protest, he said, you know, I could lose my career. It's a real threat. Mm-hmm. Just constantly feeling like if I myself, if I take a stand, I can lose my career. And so I feel that he's made such a huge sacrifice and it's incredibly brave But then will it turn out like Colin Kaepernick where Colin was blacklisted out of the league and has not been able to play at that level despite still being a great quarterback? Is Ray Fisher's career going to end at such an early stage? Is it going to end before it really began? Why I think it's so important that we talk about the sacrifice that Ray Fisher made in calling that toxic behaviour out. He didn't know what the outcome would be for him He hoped that the outcome would be positive. But you would always have something in the back of your mind saying, well, had I not said anything, had I ignored my integrity, as you've just said, what kind of situation would I be in now? And that, again, is where your job as a consumer can actually have a a positive impact. Because if you do watch or tweet support or stream or whatever the Snyder Cut, it shows that there is value in these stories, Absolutely, which means yeah. that they'll hopefully keep getting made. Yeah, I think you've made such an important point. Like we need to 
realize that we are complicit if we keep spending our money and our time in ways that are not aligned with our values. So I'm happy that the Joss Whedon cut was like a disaster. And I'm hoping that, like, I don't know how it works commercially, but I'm hoping that, I mean, the fact that they had to release this cut after so many years shows that the fan base were not playing around. And I hope that they can keep that same energy. But it's just been interesting for me just looking at the Ray Fisher piece and the fact that the people that had the most power, Ben Affleck has so much power mm-hmm. and he couldn't even be bothered to send a tweet saying, I stand with you. Yeah. Now, I know that there will be people who respond to this and say, yeah, but he he did keep advocating for the Snyder Cut. And he did. But also, let's have full-throated condemnation. You know what I mean? Let's not be left in a position where you have to read between the lines of someone's actions to be like, oh, no, they were being an ally. It is lucrative to be an ally. Or if it isn't, that's maybe the the angle that we need to go to. Obviously, it should align with your integrity to be an ally. But also, let's have it so that people like Ray Fisher aren't taking a gamble every time let's make being an ally the lucrative choice because it is lucrative and everyone benefits when we're in diverse egalitarian organizations yeah and what projects like black panther have shown what the schneider cut has shown is that people do want to see these stories done in a good way people don't want this performative diversity that happened with star wars people are not interested in that but people are happy to see diversity with characters that are developed in a way that fits with the franchise or fits with the story. Like people mm-hmm. do welcome that. Um, all the diehard DC people that I've been watching on YouTube, they welcome that. And so a bit more of that. And it's just a shame that it's like black people have to sacrifice their careers. Why? And I think it circles back to what we were saying at the beginning of this podcast as well, that it shouldn't be built on the sacrifice of minorities and also the disenfranchised. Like the disenfranchised have to keep making sacrifices to make it more enjoyable for all of us. Yeah. And if you do one thing this week... It may not be sitting down to watch the four-hour Snyder Cut, but it may be just taking a second to examine even the positive biases that you use, the model minority myth. It comes back to East Asians are good at maths. They're intelligent. They go to Harvard and they do their MBAs. What it does is then delegitimize any other problems that that person may be facing. A lot, guys. A roller coaster this week. (laughs) What a roller coaster. Thank you so much for sticking with us to the end. Again, just to reiterate, I hope you get the time to make some time for yourself this week. And it is a marathon, not a sprint. But share your thoughts with us at Jules Phoebe on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. Share the podcast with a friend. And thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye.